And Father, I pray that that's what would stand out in our study tonight as we look at these kings of the Old Testament and we see the good ones and the bad ones. We see a commonality between them all and that's the imperfection of man. It's our sin. But Lord, it's because of our sin that you came and and Lord, you died upon the cross. And as you died upon the cross, we saw grace personified. And so God, grace certainly is enough because it did everything that was required of it. And so Father, once again, we just thank you that you have brought us to this place. Praying once more, God, that you would be our instructor, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him happy Sunday. Happy Sunday evening. Hi, Rosie. How are you? Good evening, all. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 21, and we'll be picking up with our succession of kings. Remember, there's been a division in Israel. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, it's comprised of ten tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom is comprised of two tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, with Judah taking the lead, because that is the line which... Jesus Christ will come through. And so we've been, in Second Kings, it bounces back and forth to the northern king and the southern king. Chronicles are the chronicles of the southern king. And so that's what is being focused upon here. Last week, we looked at King Jehoshaphat. But as we enter into chapter 21, it says, And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. One of the main lessons that we need to learn as we look at these various kings of these kingdoms of the Old Testament that was written so long ago is the failure of man, but also it's under the sovereignty of God. We need to see how God relates to the nations and how nations relate to God, not just back then, but all throughout history and understand what's going on in our country today and understand what's going to go on in end-time events in the future, maybe even the near future. Again, in our country, other countries, everything we see going on around the world, it's really no different, the failures of man, but God still reigns sovereign. And so because God is sovereign, we're able to have a confidence regardless of the situations and circumstances of our lives, regardless of the failures and the wars and the rumors of wars, as we see things amping up to the end times. Maybe it'll occur in our lifetime, maybe it won't, but the bottom line is God is still upon the throne. God is sovereign. That means he's, over, uh, he's, he's in control of all that goes on and even through to the details of our life. This is the only way. The sovereignty of God is the only way that we can maintain faith in times of trouble, confusion, and distress. It's the only way, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things can work together for the good. And a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, as he wrote that in Romans, says, and we know, you can know this, Regardless of what is going on in your personal life or our corporate lives, all of these things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. As I've said many times, all things are not good within themselves, but all things are working together for the good. 
That's why I don't come up here and freak out every time something happens with the president or on the other side of the world, this nation, other nations, or whatever, because God's got it all under control. We continue to pray for these things. It's horrible, the, the, the laws that have been come down concerning abortion as of late. And we need to pray for those things, and we need to withstand those things, but nonetheless, God is still in control. We hear about restrictions that are being placed upon religion and our free speech. And we need to come up against that. We need to pray against it. But nonetheless, these things are working together for God's greater good. So a great political upheaval is about to take place in the northern and the southern kingdoms and in neighboring Syria. Syria has come upon the scene, and they are a threat mostly to the northern kingdom. But the king of the south, Jehoshaphat, realized this, that if they conquer the north, they will come through, and they will threaten the south. And so last week, we saw where the evil king of the north kingdom, northern kingdom, Ahab, he's now dead. And as I just read in chapter 21, verse 1, King Jehoshaphat, who is described as doing what was right in the sight of God, he has gone on as well. Jehoshaphat not being a perfect man, again, we saw his failures, but the only one who is truly good is our God. And so as we enter into chapter 21, we are introduced to another king. Again, verse 1, And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place, and he had brothers, the son of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azarahu, Michael, Sephanithah, and all these were sons of Jehoshaphat, kings of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. And so that was the way things were done back then. But you see Jehoshaphat's heart, as any man would for his sons, he did give them gifts, and so obviously he loved his children. Verse 4, Now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and he killed all of his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now, when he says that, keep in mind, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. This is a southern king and he's walking in the ways of the kings of the northern kingdom. Every king that existed in the northern kingdom was always evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's not walking in the holy ways of his fellow southern kings, but he's been influenced, and we'll see why, by the kings of the north. Verse 6, And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. And we saw Ahab's testimony. He was one of the most evil. For he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So keep this in mind. The promises of God hold firm regardless of the sin or the actions of mankind. I can take that through to my personal life just because I have sinned, just because I have fallen away does not render the promises of God mute in my life. He who began a good work in my life is going to be faithful to complete it. 
It's all about the faithfulness of God because the faithfulness of man is futile. So God gave great promises to King David that he was going to establish his throne forever, and we know that that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just because this evil king has come upon the scene, there have been those before him and there will be those after him, it did not render the promises of God mute. Now, last week we saw where the evil king of the northern kingdom, Ahab, that he has died. And as he has died, he's left, unfortunately, a lasting testimony of evil. Now, it's important here. There there be more of this confusion, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, if we were back in in 1 Kings, because again, it, it looks at the northern kings and the southern kings, but it's important to point this out in your reading as you come upon these things, because this can be very confusing. This cast of characters at this point between both of them and how they are interrelated. And so again, Ahab's dead, but before he died, obviously you had Ahab and his wife, that would be Jezebel. Jezebel was evil through and through. They had two sons, Ahaziah and Jehoram. Now you're going to see these names of the kings and, and the children of the kings in the northern kingdom, and some of them will be named the same name. Some of the southern kingdom kings will have these same names, although they are different people. So in the northern kingdom, at one point in history, you had Ahab and Jezebel. They had two sons, Ahaziah and Jehoram, and they also had a daughter that was named Athaliah. Now, Ahaziah, he died young, he was the oldest, he had no heirs, and so the kingdom went to his brother Jehoram, and Jehoram became king of the northern kingdom. So Ahab and Jezebel's son, Jehoram, he became king of the northern kingdom. Now, on the southern kingdom, you had King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat has a son, and he names him Jehoram. If you recall, when we looked at King Jehoshaphat, he was constantly making alliances with the northern king. Again, more than likely, the motivation was Syria trying to shore themselves up when that invasion came. So Jehoshaphat, probably out of respect to Ahab and Jezebel and that alliance, he names his son Jehoram. And so... You have northern Jehoram and southern Jehoram. Well, southern Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son, just to add more confusion to this, he marries the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. That was common for a king to give their daughter in order to seal an alliance together. And so he gives the, they give their daughter Athaliah. So now we have southern Jehoram and Athaliah, and they'll later have a son and name him Ahaziah, which was the same name as Athaliah's brother who had died previously. Do you got all that? (laughs) As we're going through it, I'll kind of spell it out. But just understand, what you need to see is, is the intermingling that has gone on. And really what this is, is even this good and godly man, Jehoshaphat, he compromised. Instead of totally trusting in God, he gave his alliances over to the evilness of the north. Our trust, our trust is to be in God. Now, the governing authority, 
that's been placed there by the hand of God. We're told in Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities exist that are appointed by God. But it doesn't mean that these are going to be godly men or women. Some of them are going to be very ungodly people. But we need to submit. By submitting to them, we're submitting to what God says. Now, we don't overlook sin. We don't commit sin. If they pass sinful laws, we stand against those things. But nonetheless, as much as they rule apart from causing the church to sin, we are to be submitted to them. Now, a link of evil between all of these people. What's the main influence of evil between all of these people? Well, obviously, it's the devil. But what's the devil's conduit into these people? It's Jezebel. Jezebel influenced her husband for evil, and we're going to see that she influenced her children for evil, and we'll see she even influenced her grandchildren for evil. This woman was evil through and through. She was a daughter of a Gentile king. She was not Jewish, and she brought pagan worship not only into the northern kingdom, but now soon into the southern kingdom as well. She was a wife, she was a mother, mother mother-in-law, and grandmother, and so she affected many people's lives. And the only godly one that we'll see out of the bunch tonight, well, we'll see two of them, but as of right now, is King Jehoshaphat. But again, and, and it's another encouragement, the repercussions. The repercussions of this man who compromised. I think I pointed it out last week. It's one of my prayers I would finish well, and one of the reasons that I want to finish well or strong in my faith in God isn't just for my personal relationship, that's a huge part of it without a doubt, but it's also the influence that I'm able to have on my children and my children's children. And if God is gracious, maybe my children's children, children, my great-grandchildren as well at some point. But it's important because they look at me, especially as a pastor, but not, that's not the important part so much as a Christian man, as an example of who a Christian man is. And far be it that the example that I would set would be of a Christian man who would compromise or a Christian man who would not finish well. Because the importance that I place upon my faith will lend towards the truthfulness of it in their hearts what they see that I consider to be important and what I have preached to be truth, they'll see that as a reality in my life and prayerfully a reality in their lives. If I play the hypocrite, they're not going to want any part of the hypocrisy of anybody. And so what we saw here in the first seven verses of chapter 21 is Jehoram. Jehoram, this is the southern kingdom. This is the son of excuse me, Jehoshaphat, but he has been joined together with this daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. He takes the throne upon his father's death in 848 BC. He's going to reign for some eight years. After taking the throne, what's the first thing that he does? I would imagine he probably got some advice of the north, probably got some advice from his wife, and he kills his brothers. We don't see that happening any time before in the southern kingdom. Not only does he kill his brothers, he also kills quite a few of the princes. Anybody that he would assume would be a threat to his leadership, he's wiped out. 
Obviously, that is not of the Lord, that is of the devil. So keep in mind the influence of his mother-in-law and the ramifications of her godlessness. Now, if you skip over to verse 11, notice that it says that he, this king, Jehoram, made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry and led Judah astray. Now, the idea here is, is the harlotry that they are committing is not with one another, but against God. And so you have King Ahab and you have King Jezebel. Their daughter, who has been influenced by Jezebel, now is married to Jehoram. And Jehoram, he's given his heart completely over to evil. As his father was influenced by the evilness of the north, this man has totally given himself into it. And now all of the high places that his grandfather Jeho- or father Jehoshaphat has torn down, he is reconstructing. These high places are places of pagan worship. There's usually a high degree of sexuality and the flesh that is attached to them. And so you could see how this would be a temptation to the people, and he has made it a reality. And unfortunately, it's going to eventually lead to the complete downfall of both the northern and the southern kingdom. Still quite a few years to come, but it's still a reality. In the remaining verses dedicated to Jehoram, we see a picture of a kingdom crumbling. Now, we see through the scriptures, and we saw it with King Esau, and we saw it with King Jehoshaphat, they weren't perfect people. And we're kind of visiting the repercussions of that, of Jehoshaphat's sin. They did what they believed was to be right in the sight of God, and it was, and God blessed their nations because of the good that they did. God never intended them to be perfect people and not sin. And as much as they depended upon them, they sought after the Lord. Now, there always seems to be in the scriptures this kind of line that is drawn in the sand, and, and that there's the sins of the king, and as we just, just sang, your, your grace is enough. God is gracious. Grace demands God's favor, even though we are unworthy of it. It's basically the definition of, of, of grace. But there seems to be the stepping over as far as the worship of these false gods. And it's something that we got to be careful of. Now, probably there's nobody in here that will ever set an altar up or a high place in their living room or anything along those lines. But just whatever it might be that comes in between us and a relationship with the Lord. Because again, you see Christ upon the cross. He's totally dedicated to you. He's given of his life for your salvation. Now, based upon that, what are you willing to give in return? God asks for your heart to him and him only in return. Now, what's happening here is that they have established these places. And again, the Bible refers to it as harlotry or adultery against God. They're going, again, they're going after these false gods. And now what we're going to see in the last part of this chapter is that has kicked in. God, God coming up against people who have forsaken him. Now, first we're going to see this letter from Elijah. And this letter from Elijah, who is Elijah? Elijah is the prophet that is spoken of in Kings. But you need to look at it more specifically. As he is a prophet, he is one who speaks the word of God to whoever it may be. In this particular place, he's speaking it to the king. And so this is the word of God as it comes to the king. 
It says in verse 12, And the letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus the Lord God of your father David, or thus says the Lord God of your father David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or the ways of Asa king of Judah, that would be his grandfather, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab, and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household, who were better than yourselves, he means more godly than yourself, behold, or check this out, this is going to be the ramifications, the Lord will strike your people with serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of sickness day by day. He's telling him, you are going to suffer a slow, miserable death. Can't even imagine. Verse 16. Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that there was not a son left to him except for Jehoahaz, the youngest of his son. After all this... The Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time after the, after the end of two years, so he suffered for two years, that his intestines came out because of his sickness, so he died in severe pain, and his people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. They're recognizing that this is the judgment of God against this man. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Even the people determined that this man was a disgrace. He was a disgrace. He killed his own brothers, and he's destroyed basically the kingdom of Israel. Because you have to remember what he had said, what, what uh, Elijah had said earlier, not just that he was going to be struck, but the people were struck. So the people are suffering as well. And again, it's something that we would do well to remember come election time. Whoever it is that we put in office, we need to make the determination of their moral character. Who are these people in the sight of God? What are the things? And again, when you vote, don't vote for the one who you think is going to win. That's not what it's about. We vote for the one who you believe is properly going to represent in our particular case, are biblical morals. I mean, it's best make the best determination that we can, and unfortunately, it's getting very hard to do that. But because this man, because he crossed over that line of idolatry, he brought the judgment of God. Now, God has stirred the enemies of Judah against them, and they've come, even taken away the king's sons. Can you imagine being the king? And I, I would imagine he fled more than likely. He probably fled and left his wives and his sons. He was just out to save his own skin and to hear that they had been taken away captive into a foreign land. What a king, an attacking king would do, he would take a king's possessions, he would take his wives, he would take his children, and those would be kind of like his trophies of, of, of war. And not only that, just every single day of his miserable life, to this, this reminder, this reminder of what he has done and the pain that he is suffering and this long, sorrowful death. 
And so we need to see this is God's attitude towards godlessness. This is God's attitude towards a nation that completely and totally, especially from the, the leadership, but the leadership on down, turns their hearts away. And you've got to keep in mind, as Jehoram was placed upon the throne, the people were accepting of this. I mean, he reestablished the high places. It's not that the high places were just there. People were worshiping at the high places. And so these things were established amongst the people, and God's judgment came against them. Another new southern kingdom, as we enter into <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 22, then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, now keep in mind, this is southern Ahaziah, the first Ahaziah that we were introduced to, he has passed away at a young age, he was the son of Ahab and Jezebel, this particular Ahaziah is the grandson of Jehoshaphat. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the other sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. So he was only around for one year. This isn't going to turn out so well. Why? Well, now we see his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, but keep in mind, Athaliah, she is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel that was given to Jehoshaphat's son as a wife, more than likely to seal a treaty. And so Jehoshaphat compromised this way. Now we're going to see this fear of influence that has entered into this family because of that compromise of Jehoshaphat. Verse 3, he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, so he walked in evil. Well, his mother, it says here, for his mother advised him to do wickedly. She was a major influence in his life, and what was permeated within her heart was that which was permeated in her mother Jezebel's heart. Jezebel was evil. She raised an evil daughter. This evil daughter now has raised an evil son. Therefore, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He also followed their advice and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab. Now this Jehoram, keep in mind, this is the northern king at this time. He is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. The other one has died of that intestinal disease. He followed their advice and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Hazel, king of Assyria, at Ramoth Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. Joram is another name for Jehoram. So these are the same people. This is the northern king's name. And he returned to Jezreel. Jezreel is the valley of Armageddon, at least in that area. It's where Mount Megiddo is and... It's this place that was considered to be a stronghold. They went and they fought against the Syrians. They were defeated, basically, or at least repulsed. And so now he has come to the stronghold for the purpose of recuperation. Then he returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which he had received at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria, and Ahaz. Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab and Jezreel, because he was sick. And so again, they have this alliance. This man is actually his uncle, so he's coming to check him out. Verse 7. 
his going to Jehoram was God's occasion for Asariah's downfall. So God allowed this for God's particular purposes. God's going to use this family alliance for two purposes. First, there is Ahaziah and Jehoram's confederation. This is a confederation of kings to face this Syrian king who is invading the land. And God is using this king of Syria in order to bring judgment upon really both kings. And so we've got to make this determination. You know, looking at our country, the ramifications on some of the things that even we've done, seemingly good at the time. Remember when Russia and Afghanistan were at war against one another? Well, we thought we would enter in and give Afghanistan a hand. We sold them quite a few weapons. I don't know if we sold them or gave them to them, but nonetheless, to fight Russia, they were quite successfully in repulsing Russia. Russia finally just basically gave up and left. But then those same weapons that we gave them later on, even today, they use against us. And so these alliances, when you make alliances, you've got to be careful. Bring that into your life, the people that you associate with. Are they of the Lord? How are they influencing you? Are they influencing you towards the Lord? Are they influencing you away from the Lord? Bring that into a decision to become married. That's why we're told to not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or in a business partnership, not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because they are not going to influence you in a godly direction, but in a godless direction. And so these things, these things definitely have repercussions. And so there's this confederation, but... They repulsed them. Syria repulsed them. Then Ahaziah and Jehoram, there's also a consolidation. God bringing them together for his judgment against him. So once again, verse 7, his going to Joram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall. For when he arrived, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. And it happened when Jehu was executing judgment on the the house of Ahab, and found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brother who served Ahaziah, that he killed them. Then he searched for Ahaziah, and they caught him. He was hiding in Samaria and brought him to Jehu. When they had killed him, they buried him because they said, he is the son of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all of his heart. So the house of Ahaziah had no one to assume power over the kingdom. So Jehu, this man who has just kind of suddenly entered in, he's of the northern kingdom. God has anointed him to bring judgment against these two kings. And so he does. He kills Jehoram, and now he's killed Ahaziah. He's killed these other princes because he understands that these people are evil. Jehu at this time is a righteous man seeking after God, and unfortunately, in the end, he's going to be another northern kingdom who did evil in the sight of God. We're told in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And we see that both of these kings have come to their demise by the hand of God's instrument. It's the wage of their sinful life. It has brought the end of their lives. And so, I, now keep in mind, and we're going to see her demise in just a minute, but Jezebel, can you imagine all this death and destruction? It's because of her, and it's her influence into her life. And then her daughter, it's the same thing. Athaliah, this, this influence that she has exercised over her sons and, and, and her husband, it's brought forth death and destruction, 
But there's a thirst for power and there's a lust for the world in these two women that just doesn't stop. And as it doesn't stop, it's bringing the downfall of so many. As far as Jehu, well, we're told in Romans 13 verse 4, for he, for the elected official, in this particular case Jehu, is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And so the idea here, Romans chapter 13, as far as the governing authorities, we're told in the Bible, don't steal. So what happens if you go steal? If you go steal, God probably won't strike you dead. But what's going to happen? The governing authorities, if they find you, they will execute the wrath of God. You'll be punished. You'll be imprisoned. Same thing for any crime that we commit. God's method for eradication of evil, well, for this particular, particular case, it's Jehu as the tool. World War II, who did God use to confront Nazi Germany? It was Roosevelt, it was Churchill, it was de Gaulle, and it was even Stalin. Stalin was the most evil of man. He killed almost as many people, murdered almost as many people as Hitler did. I don't believe, I, I, I looked it up, I couldn't tell if any of them were believers, but they were tools against Hitler. What did Hitler do? Hitler touched the apple of God's eye. He did so through the Holocaust. Now keep in mind, the apple of somebody's eye is their pupil, and it's as if Hitler was going and poking God in the eye. And they incurred, he incurred, the wrath of God. Well, again, that's exactly what is happening here. So the things that we see in Scripture is they followed these means and the judgment of God that has come upon them. We see them many times throughout history. Second King tells us that this is around the time when the Lord deals with Ahab's wife Jezebel in Second Kings chapter 9, verse 30 through 37, it says, Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adored her head and looked through a window. So she gussied herself up. She's always been used um, fleshly means to influence, I'm sure, Ahab and so many others. So she was going to attempt to do this with this man, Jehu. It says, then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two of the three eunuchs looked out at him. Then he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. Then he said, go now and see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was the daughter's king. She was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore, they came back and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he had spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuge on the surface of the field and the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. And so what his point here is, based upon the prophecies of God, this is the judgment of God upon this most evil woman who has influence for godlessness, the generations. And we see in her life, she sat, remember, in a palace. She lived a privileged life. I didn't look up how many years, but it was many, many years. 
But Romans 6, verses 20 through 23 tells us, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This woman who did not have a heart to turn or heart to repent, she's now perished. She's perished according to the ways that the Lord said. But again, her influence, and this is why I encourage you to be a godly person, to be a person of the word of God to share it with your family, to share it with whoever it is that God brings in your life. Because one day, if the Lord doesn't tarry, you're going to, at the very least, get sick and die. And as you get sick and die, what is going to be your testimony to the future generations? Because it's always going to be the things that we have done for the Lord that are going to persevere throughout the ages. But I guarantee you it will also be the things, if you do not do the things of the Lord, it will be the things of the flesh that will influence the ages as well. And we see this perfectly illustrated in Athaliah. Athaliah, remember, she is the daughter of Jezebel. And it says in verse 10, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, remember Jehu had killed him, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Now what is she doing? She had an element of power with her son. She apparently had great influence over him. But now there's other heirs and she's wondering what to do. Apparently she didn't have such a great influence over them, so she did what her husband did with his brothers. She just went and killed them all. Now, can you imagine Athaliah, the mother of Azariah, saw her son was dead and arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. She killed all of her grandchildren. Do you see the degree of evilness here? That this woman could, I mean, I'm sure she didn't do it by her hand, but just to have that done, you just see how far she was. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, So here's a a woman, I don't know how, I mean her husband, but apparently other places. She was influenced for godliness. The daughter of the king took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from amongst the king's sons who were being murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the Uh, The daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So this woman who introduced Judah to the worship of Baal has her grandsons put to death. Without the sons of her dead son or her brother's son, she gets the throne. But once again, we have a picture of someone trying to achieve their ambition in the flesh. Keep in mind, failure comes when we act in the flesh. That comes in conflict with the will of God. Athaliah, although she seems successful at the beginning, 
it's not going to end well. Her insurmountable problem here is that she has assumed the throne, but she is not of the lineage of David. So she is destined for failure. So this evil woman who is coming up against God will soon fail in her scheme. And so what we see here is, is Jehoshabeth, her daughter, and this man that she has married, um, Jehoiada, these are godly people. And they see the evilness of what's going on. Keep in mind, no matter how bad things are, how godless things seem to be, there's always a godly remnant. There's always people who are willing to do the will of the Lord, even when it means coming in opposition to the world. Always be of the mindset to be that person. Because I've read to the end of the book, our side has already won. It doesn't win. It's already won. We're more than conquerors. We fight from the standpoint of victory. And so we see a spared heir here. It's here that we're introduced to these two other people. Jehoiada, he is the high priest at the time. Jehoshabeth is the daughter of Jehoram and Athaliah and the aunt of Joash, who she spared during this most evil time, they do fear the Lord and they are willing to do what is right in their sight. Now keep in mind what, could be, what, what the cost could be here. If they fail, if they're found out, I'm sure it's going to cost them their lives. This woman who had no qualms of killing her uh, own grandchildren would for sure kill her own daughter and her husband. So from the perspective of the people of Judah, with the legitimate heirs all dead, Athaliah rules on the throne for six more years. The reason that the temple, it was described here, the house of the Lord was a safe place is because Athaliah, would not enter into it because she had no desire for the Lord. And Jehoiada, the high priest, he still had control there. And there still was, once again, this godly remnant, not just in Jehoiada, but others. And so there was this house of the Lord, was this safe place, and this is where this child was, was being raised. Again, there were still people that feared the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. She also did have a house built to worship Baal that was in Jerusalem, but she has allowed these things because she feared the people. She did fear the people, the people who feared God. It's the same thing. It's the reason why the church exists today, because your government, it still fears the church. Keep that in mind, because what we're always hearing about, and even from pulpits, and we do a great disservice of this big bad government that's coming down against us. We move forward by the power of the living God. The government cannot do anything aside from the will of God. So when you have any ministry and and even some legitimate ministries that are crying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is not falling. The sky is upheld by the hand of God. And so just even during this most evil of time, which is even more evil than our times, there was still that godly remnant, and God kept them, and God preserved them, because God had reasons and purposes for them. This woman was not, I mean, maybe it seemed, you know, after six years, seems like she was prevailing at the liar, but God had different plans, and he was raising up the, uh, the, the next generation. 
So we can never forget the outcome of history and the future. It's all in the hands of God. So for six years, with all that's going on, God's got his guy, Joash, safe. He's tucked away in the temple. He's waiting on the timing of the Lord. We see this concept in Elijah. Because as strong and powerful in word and deed as Elijah is, he had those times, as we all can, of lapse of faith. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, Jezebel had come up against him. He kind of was depressed at this time. He was ready just to die. And he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Yet I have reserved seven, now this is God's response, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I still have people, Elijah. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. We're not the only ones here. We'll never be the only ones. Because again, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is none. Entering into chapter 23, we see the air revealed. It says, in the seventh year, Jehoiada, remember, that was the priest, strengthened himself and made a covenant with the captains of hundreds. And so this man has gotten the leaders together. And these are leaders who fear the Lord. And God has more than likely impressed upon his heart, now it's time to establish the proper king. And so verse Two, and they went throughout all of Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the chief fathers of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. Then all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God, and he said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said of the sons of David. So this, this young man was of the lineage of David. And this is what you shall do. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests and the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors. One third shall be at the king's house and one third at the gate of the foundation. All the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priests and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the watch of the Lord. And the Levites shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hands. And whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king, and when he comes in and when he goes out. So they understand this is basically going to be some element of civil war here. And so what they do is they take this young man and they, they, they coronate him as, as king. They, they put him on the altar and they start blowing trumpets. It's kind of an interesting thing here in Second Chronicles 23.11, or this chapter, verse 11. It says, they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. So they, they put the crown on him. This secularly, secularly tells me that he is king and he's ruling over the nation. It says, and they gave him the testimony, the, the, the law. But when it says, gave him the testimony, those words gave him are in italics in your Bible. That means that they were added. Now, they did give him the testimony, but what do I think happened here? They put the crown on him, and they put the testimony on him. And so this man is to rule, and this man is to rule in righteousness. When something is upon you, it's upon your head, that means that you are responsible. When they say your blood is upon your own head, that means you're responsible for your own death. 
And so I really believe that they put the testimony upon him that this man is going to rule. He's got the crown, but he, and this was a godly man, Joash, that he is going to rule in fear of the Lord. This was done according to the will of God, by the word of God, for the king and God's people. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20. We've been there many times. But the king was not to multiply riches, not to multiply wives, and he was not to multiply horses, and he was also to write out the words of the law. And it's very possible that this young man had wrote out the words of the law, and it's this that was placed upon him as a reminder of the responsibility Then we see the wages of Athaliah in verse 12. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, also the singers with musical instruments and those who led in praise. So Athaliah tore her clothes and said, Treason, treason! She's understanding that her days are now numbered. And Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were set over the army and said to them, Take her outside under guard and slay her with the sword, uh, slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not kill her in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and she went by way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house, and they killed her there. And so now this influence of Jezebel, who has destroyed so many lives in two kingdoms, at least for a period of time, now it's finally been wiped out. And what we'll see, and this is what we'll close with in these final verses, is the reestablishment of the throne of David. In verses 16 through 21, a couple key things. First, we see a proclamation in verse 16. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. And the idea here is this is a covenant between the king and the people and the nation and God that you will be our king and we once again will be your people. Next, we see an eradication in verse 17. And all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke in pieces its altars and its images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. They wanted no remnant of this and which has brought such hardship to their nations. Oh, if we would only have that mindset. Next is an adoration, verses 18 through 19. Also Jehoiada appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord, to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing, or worshiping, as it was established by David. And they set the gatekeepers at the gates in the house of the Lord, so that no one who was in the way, in any way unclean, should enter. So what they did here was they established the working of the law of God, the way God had commanded it to be done. Not just the working of the law, but also the worship of God as God had commanded his people to worship him. So what's happening here? Not just secularly, but spiritually, things are being done according to God's will. And lastly, we see a restoration, verses 20 through 21, 
Then he took the captains of hundreds and nobles, the governors of the people and all the people of the land and brought the king down from the house of the Lord and they went through the upper gate to the king's house and set the king on the throne of the kingdom so all the people of the land rejoice and the city was quiet for they have slain Athaliah with the sword. They have destroyed the evil and the source of evil and the influence of evil. Well, that's never going to be completely eradicated until Jesus Christ comes. But as much as depends upon me, as much as depends upon you, have that attitude in your heart. When David speaks in the Psalms of his enemy, his great enemy, he prays, God, destroy the enemy. Who's the enemy? The greatest enemy that we have in our life is the one who you look at daily in the mirror. It's the flesh, it's the world, and it's the deception of the evil one. And it's those who we need to pray truly that God would destroy. Just as surely as we see this picture here, those three sources of evil, just as Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed and eventually given to the heathens, and so was the southern kingdom, so will our life and our descendants be affected as well. But as we keep our eyes upon the Lord, as the grace of God is truly enough, it's then that we're able to influence the future generations for godliness. Because see, if we look throughout, not just the scripture, but even God's book, but also our history book, we see that these are how things have played out throughout the course of history. England, why was England the most powerful nation in the world, this little island in Europe? Because they had such great missionaries and they had such great influence, not perfection, but influence of the Lord throughout the world. When they stopped, they're reduced. Even today, they're really a second world country anyway. I wouldn't think I'd call them a third world country. Psalm 33, verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Lord, I pray as much as depends upon us, our nation would be truly of you. But regardless of what happens, Father, I pray that we as individuals will follow hard after you. That, God, we would not be a people who compromise, but I pray, Father, that we would overcome. And how much more so when we're faced with our great enemies, the flesh. Father, the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. Grant us victory over our own flesh, over our own evil desires. The world, as it seeks to influence us according to its way, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it brings death. Father, I pray that you would enable us to resist the world. And Father, we will not succumb to the wiles of the devil as well. And so, Father, in order to achieve this, I pray that we would forever stay rooted and grounded in your word, that we would remain faithful, God, to your call. And as we do, Lord, do great things through our humble selves. Lord, we're just common people here, but we're common people who are filled with the spirit of the living God. And I pray, Father, it's that which would shine forth in our lives. Father, I lift up those who have come out today. I pray that you would go before them. I pray, Father, that you would bless them and use them, Father, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Next Saturday is our family night. We're having a family night slash game night. It starts at 4 o'clock here at the church. There's going to be a short devotion, and we're just going to get together and have fellowship. Um, We're going to have a chili cook-off. I am not going to be the judge because I don't want to bring have the wrath come upon me of the person who doesn't win, but everybody is really going to judge all the chilies, and we'll just come to... uh, Uh, an agreement on that and who wins but nonetheless just come on out it's going to be a time of great fellowship next Saturday night next Saturday night 
at 4 o'clock. Other than that, God bless you guys. Have a great rest of the week. night, everyone.